A Word with the Ethnolinguist Introductory Episode What the fill-in-the-blank is an ethnolinguist? A Word with the Ethnolinguist, hosted by me, Amari J, is a podcast dedicated to discussing our world ethnolinguistically. In other words, how people work out their respective relationships to, with, and between language and culture. Let's talk the overview and purpose. We'll cover a bit more about the flow of the aforementioned episodic journey and what that means for our listeners. Basically, this is where I'll try my absolute best to live up to those things that I say I do in the trailer episode. back. This is Amari J and you are having a word with the ethnolinguist. So fellow knowledge seekers, let's get right to it. What we have in store for you is an introduction to this podcast and its purpose. I'll define ethnolinguistics and provide context on its etymology, which means the study of words including their origins, changes, and occurrences like lexical borrowing. That's something that I'll also define, but perhaps not now, maybe in a later episode. We'll explore the basic flow of this podcast and talk about what you can expect each month as the show progresses. After we cover the flow, I'll provide an overview of some of the episode topics for this season. These topics will be explored and presented through both solo and interview-centric coverage. Through observations and discussions of scholarship, we analyze and break down prevailing ideologies and understandings. While these topics may present as vastly different at times, the thread that ties them together is spun out of cultures, languages, and the people both to whom they may correspond and or to whom certain qualities may be attributed either by themselves or by others. As our conversations extend, I'll get to share a bit more about myself regarding some of my own experiences, passions, interests, projects, and research. Through our time together, it is my sincerest of hopes to make topics surrounding ethnolinguistics more accessible to a broader audience. Perhaps even more rewardingly so, Along this journey, I'll be privileged to learn more about you. (laughs) Yes, you, my good friends. Uh, That basically means that I'll get to learn more about the world in which we live and as it's understood through the myriad of cultures and languages of the diverse peoples we encounter. So, trumpet effects. Let us commence, shall we? So, just what the fill in the blank is an ethnolinguist? Before we answer that, two things. First off, thank you all for joining me today. Secondly, I suppose that it's best that we answer the question, what is ethnolinguistics, prior to us filling in the blank? In order for us to best define ethnolinguistics, I venture forth to say that a worthwhile departure point would be its etymology. 
which again can be conceptualized as the study of words, including their origins and changes. Such being the case, I'd like to present etymological considerations of ethnolinguistics. Ethno-anecdote. Ethno-anecdote. It's time for an ethno-anecdote. Free bonus content, in other words. Normally, I'd include this as part of the bonus segment. However, since this is the introductory episode, I thought I'd provide you with a snippet of just some of the things that I have in store for my fellow knowledge seekers. While doing some research for this episode, it was as if a blessing fell from the sky. So, my cousin was about to leave my house, and as he and I said our goodbyes, he left, and within a minute or so, I received a FaceTime call. He said, Weren't you speaking of wanting to buy some more books the other day? Well, it looks like there's a box that one of your neighbors left out for passersby. I thank him, say another set of goodbyes, and then throw in some shoes to revise the box of books. I come across Roger's, or Roger's, not too sure, uh, depending on the way many would have liked for their name to be pronounced, and as I've not heard it uh, directly from the family, that is in question. Anyone who knew them personally, please, please chime in here. So, I came across Roger's thesaurus, and it seemed to be in mint condition, which made me curious as to why they would have thrown it out. As I look through the rest of the books, I come across quite antiquated versions of dictionaries and rhyming books, amongst an array of others. So, no need to buy any more dictionaries for a while, I'd say. So, now let's talk research findings. As research resumes, to ensure that memory does not fail me with my understanding of the etymological aspects of the prefix ethnos, I begin to flip through the pages of the aforementioned thesaurus. Ethereal, ethicism, Ethiopian, Ethiopian skin, um, ethnology, ethnic Ethology, ethos, okay. So, wow, I just came across the term Ethiopian skin. And, of course, this has tons of air quotes. Um, anyhow, I come across the term Ethiopian skin, for which it was used as a synonym for a few entries, namely those of, all in quotes here, blackness, stability, and unchangeable. Additionally, for stability, in quotes, the terms, in quotes, leopard spots and the law of Medes or Medes and Persians, end quotes, were used. So, delving deeper into the etymology of the word ethnolinguistics, it would be of benefit to briefly consider each of these references as there's much to learn here. Etymological explorations. So, from its origin to the way in which contemporaries utilize the term, much has changed. But before we go any further, let's cover a few basic considerations. So, 
I like to think of a word's origins as the effects of contemporary thought descriptions. In this particular case, this sheds light on the ways in which written Western knowledge forms were spoken of during their nascent or naissant moments. And we'll touch on that at a later moment here. But that basically made its way into English via French, and it means into the moments in which they were born, uh, or those moments from which they sprung. So, continuing forward here, basically, this could further be said to mean those elements of life to which a word's description was attributed for the people who actually brought it or thought it into existence. Reflecting on these quote-unquote synonymous terms, referring back to the Ethiopian skin, etc., you know, which in modern standards would be, needless to say, deemed quite inappropriate, let's consider some ancient texts, which, solely for reasons of sharing historical information I divulge, are simultaneously considered religious texts. So, let's talk religious references here. The term ethnos can be found in various religious texts, both in English translations and in their original languages. Here are some examples. In the Bible, um, and what some would call the New Testament portion and others would consider, which is simultaneously true in both cases, um, depending on which Bible versions you have and which religion or denomination of Christianity uh, you may be most associated with or familiar with, whether that be in personal studies or experiences or with those that are related to just learning through the vast sources that exist out there. So others would consider these the Roman scriptures as opposed to the Hebrew Aramaic scriptures, which were the principal languages in which the quote-unquote Old Testament in comparison to the New Testament was written. The New Testament being that they were Romano-Greco scriptures or Roman and Greek peoples who were the writers in most cases. What resulted of this is that the latter half of the Bible, in this case what we are considering here, was written in Latin and Greek. And we know that there are lots of terms that make their way even into common language in what we consider modern times. And I am speaking of that in very real time here because the very term that we are considering has its roots in Greek and we'll consider how it makes its way throughout the world into what we're speaking on today. But let us consider this nonetheless uh, about the New Testament of the Bible. And we're going to call it that just for sake of it also being one of the more common ways in which it's referred to in modern times. In the New Testament of the Christian Bible, the term ethnos appears frequently, often translated as nations or Gentiles, both in quotes. It refers to non-Jewish individuals or people groups. For example, in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus instructs his disciples to go, therefore, and make disciples of all ethnos or of all nations. Let us now consider 
how we move into a different set of religious texts. Perhaps not the exact word ethnos is used, however there is some concept that is comparable and it is, uh, if we want to say, translated into these languages in which these texts were written, we see that there may be a great connection. And so for those who also are speakers of some of these other languages, Perhaps my pronunciation will not be that of a native speaker. However, please understand that I will be trying my absolute best. Now, let us move forward to the Quran, or what many people would say, the Quran. In the Quran, or the Quran, uh, the holy book of Islam, the word Qawm is used. So, this can be translated also as nation or people and it signifies groups of people with shared characteristics while ethnos is not really used in the quran the concept of distinct nations or people groups is present we're going to move across the globe and now start to understand a little bit more about hindu scripture in the bhagavad gita the term jhana is utilized to describe people or beings. It refers to different groups, societies, or collectives. Although not an exact equivalent of ethnos, it does convey the idea of distinct communities. The Torah. So, in the Jewish religious texts, including the Torah, the Hebrew term goy is used, which can be translated as nation or people. It often refers to non-Jewish nations or Gentiles. It conveys the concept of different groups or ethnicities. Now we'll move across into Buddhist scriptures and we'll take a look into the Tripitaka. In Buddhist scriptures, such as the Tripitaka, the term Jati or Janapada is utilized to denote people or groups. It refers to communities, regions, or societies, highlighting the diversity of human populations. So, takeaways here. It is important to note that the translations and interpretations of religious texts may vary and different terms may be used to convey similar ideas. The examples provided offer instances where the concept of distinct communities or nations, similar to the term or the concept of ethnos, can be found in religious texts across different traditions. Now that we've covered a bit about its etymology as mentioned through religious texts, I'd like to speak on some other aspects that really drive home the effects of contemporary thought descriptions and how the prefix ethnos became so deeply rooted in Western civilization and knowledge production. Let's delve further into the etymology of the term ethnos and explore its historical usage, meaning, and associations from ancient times to the present. 
The term ethnos originates from ancient Greek, where it referred to a community or group of people who shared a common culture, language, and sense of identity. The word was derived from the Greek verb etho, meaning to be accustomed or to dwell. This connection suggests that the concept of ethnos was rooted in the notion of people dwelling together, sharing customs, and forming a distinct social unit. In ancient Greece, the term ethnos denoted various groups, including city-states, tribes, or nations. It encompassed both the political and cultural aspects of a collective identity. For instance, the Greek historian Herodotus used the term to describe the diverse communities encountered during his travels, emphasizing their unique customs, languages, and traditions. Throughout history, ethnos continued to be employed uh, to describe distinct cultural, linguistic, or geographical groups. So, in the context of the Roman Empire, the term Gins, Gins, and which would later make its way into the dialects of uh, Latin and remain in certain forms as Gens, right? G E N S. Uh, this term was often used to refer to various ethnic or tribal communities, while the Greek term ethnos remained well in use within the Hellenistic world. During the colonial era, as European powers embarked upon their global exploration and conquest, the concept of ethnos gained prominence in discussions of indigenous peoples encountered in newly discovered lands. Scholars and explorers applied the term to categorize and differentiate various indigenous groups based on perceived oftentimes, but what people would say are their cultural, racial, and or linguistic characteristics. In modern times, the term ethnos remains relevant in the fields of anthropology, in sociology, and cultural studies. Interestingly enough, as I can elaborate upon a little bit later, it's made its way even very much so in at least part into the world of tech. And let us just return to that thought about you know where it is being utilized in different fields here. So... It is employed to analyze and understand social identities, ethnic diversity, and intergroup relations. The study of ethnicity focuses on how different ethnic groups form and maintain distinctiveness and interact with one another in multicultural societies. Today, ethnos serves as a foundational concept for exploring issues related to multiculturalism, identity politics, and cultural heritage preservation. It recognizes the significance of shared customs, of languages, histories, and traditions in shaping group identities and social dynamics. In conclusion for that of the etymology, the term ethnos has a rich etymology rooted in ancient Greek signifying a community or group of people who share a common culture and identity. It has been utilized throughout history 
to describe various social units from city-states to indigenous communities. In contemporary discourse, ethnos continues to play a crucial role in examining ethnicity, intergroup relations, and cultural diversity in our globalized world. So now let's talk the actual definition of the term. My, my. Ethnolinguistics defined. According to Merriam-Webster, ethnolinguistics means a study of the relations between linguistic and non-linguistic cultural behavior. Additionally, I'd like to add that ethnolinguistics is a noun, plural in its makeup, yet singular in construction and its usage. So, as Merriam-Webster states, it is a study of the relations between linguistic and non-linguistic cultural behavior. We will break this down even further. As we return, I'll be providing you with my definition of ethnolinguistics, covering some of the key aspects of this field of study and more. my definition of ethnolinguistics. So, for the purposes of this podcast, I'll share my own definition of the term ethnolinguistics, and I'll contextualize it according to the varied episode topics as we continue on our ethnolinguistic journey. I define ethnolinguistics thus as an interdisciplinary field of study that explores the intersections of complex relationships between language, culture, ethnicity, and identity as either activated, enacted upon, formulated, influenced, and or negotiated within varied social settings. Now let's move into an overview of ethnolinguistics as a discipline. Ethnolinguistics examines how language and culture intersect and mutually influence each other, focusing on the ways in which language reflects and shapes cultural practices, identities, and worldviews. Ethnolinguistics investigates the interplay between language variation, language ideologies, and cultural diversity, emphasizing the social, cultural, and historical contexts in which languages are spoken. It explores topics such as language contact, language shift, language maintenance, language endangerment, language revitalization, and language policy, with a particular emphasis on understanding the dynamics of ethnolinguistic communities and their language practices. Ethnolinguistics draws on methodologies and theories from anthropology, from linguistics, from sociology, and other related fields to provide insights on the intricate connections between language, culture, ethnicity, and identity. A by name for ethnolinguistics. Ethnolinguistics, or the AKA term cultural linguistics, is a scientific field that explores the relationship between language and culture. It focuses on how different cultural groups perceive and express reality through words. This branch of anthropological linguistics studies the connection between language and the non-linguistic cultural behavior of its speakers. 
Ethnolinguists demonstrate how language is linked to various cultures and societies by examining the influence of perception and conceptualization on language. They also explore how spatial orientation is expressed differently across cultures, such as the use of cardinal directions based upon geographical landmarks uh, from some indigenous populations. Additionally, related fields of cultural linguistics investigate the encoding of cultural conceptualizations in language, while sociolinguistics examines the association between language use and social structure. Linguistic anthropology complements these disciplines by studying how language practices shape communication patterns and cultural beliefs. The study of ethnolinguistic groups sheds light on the social and emotional connections within and between such groups, as well as the political implications of language differences in diverse societies. Ethnolinguistics, also known as cultural linguistics, is a field within anthropological linguistics that investigates the dynamic relationship between language and culture within specific communities or social groups. It examines how language is intricately intertwined with the non-linguistic aspects of human behavior, including cultural practices, beliefs, values, and social norms. Now we'll dive into a few key aspects of ethnolinguistics. Some key aspects of ethnolinguistics include language and culture interaction. Ethnolinguistics explores how language and culture mutually influence and shape each other. It recognizes that language is not just a system of communication, but is deeply embedded in cultural contexts, cultural behavior, and linguistic patterns. So. Ethnolinguistics studies the connections between linguistic structures, usage, and cultural behaviors. It examines how language reflects cultural categories, conceptualizations, and worldviews. In terms of sociolinguistic variation, ethnolinguistics investigates how language variation occurs within specific cultural and social contexts. It examines dialects, registers, and sociolinguistic factors in relation to cultural identity and group membership. As we move on to language documentation and revitalization, ethnolinguistics emphasizes the documentation and preservation of endangered languages, recognizing the cultural heritage and knowledge embedded within them. It also explores the strategies for language revitalization and for community-based language initiatives. Language and identity. This is perhaps the key aspect of ethnolinguistics that I find myself most drawn to. In fact, plenty of my research is centered on this topic. Ethnolinguistics recognizes that language plays a crucial role in shaping individual and group identities. It explores how language choice, language attitudes, and language practices contribute to the construction and negotiation of social identities. 
Now let's ping pong around the globe through time as we briefly cover a series of interesting topics related to each of the aforementioned key aspects of ethnolinguistics, from moments in ancient history to modern times. First, let us talk ancient history, and in particular, let's talk ancient Egypt and hieroglyphs. In ancient Egypt, the hieroglyphic script played a vital role in shaping and in preserving the culture of the civilization. Hieroglyphs were not only a writing system, but also a reflection of the Egyptian worldview, of beliefs and social structure. The intricate symbols depicted various aspects of their daily life, of their religious practices, and mythological stories. The language and its written form were closely tied to the cultural and religious practices of ancient Egyptians, influencing their art, their architecture, and religious rituals. Conversely, the cultural beliefs and practices influenced the development and evolution of the hieroglyphic script, creating a symbiotic relationship between language and culture. Moving along, we'll talk ancient history and we can't really move past this topic without visiting that of the Rosetta Stone and ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs. We must simply embed it into this conversation. The Rosetta Stone, discovered in 1799, played a crucial role in the documentation and preservation of ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, an endangered language of the past. The stone contained an inscription in three scripts, hieroglyphic, demotic, and Greek. This allowed scholars to decipher the hieroglyphic script by comparing it with the known Greek translation. The decipherment of the hieroglyphs opened a window into the rich cultural heritage and knowledge of ancient Egypt. It enabled the preservation of their language, facilitating the understanding of their history, literature, religious beliefs, and societal structures. So the next logical jump I would say here in terms of ancient history involves classical Greece and the Greek language. In ancient Greece, the Greek language played a pivotal role in shaping the cultural and intellectual landscape. The Greek language had a profound influence on literature, philosophy, science, and politics. The works of renowned Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle were written in Greek and had lasting impact on Western thought. The language itself reflected the cultural values and the concepts of the Greeks, including their emphasis on democracy, civic life, and the pursuit of knowledge. Conversely, the cultural developments and intellectual achievements of ancient Greece shaped the Greek language, introducing new words and expressions and also concepts that enriched the Greek language and contributed to its evolution. Now let us talk about modern times here. So, modern times and English and globalization. I did mention Greek ping pong, right? Well, let us jump from that ancient time and the Greek language and understand how contextualizing it in terms of Western thought and globalization is quite befitting here because, in fact, this podcast is being hosted in a particular language that, you know, has demonstrated exponential growth, especially in comparison to many other languages in terms of globalization and just the 
amount of speakers and even learners out there. So we'll go ahead and talk about English and globalization. English as a global language demonstrates how language and culture mutually influence each other in the modern world. English has become a lingua franca for communication across different cultures and countries due to the influence of political, economic, and technological globalization. As English spreads and becomes a means of international communication, it adapts and assimilates elements from various cultures. It incorporates loan words, expressions, and cultural references from different languages and cultures, reflecting the cultural diversity of its speakers. At the same time, the widespread use of English as a global language influences cultural practices, such as the adoption of English terms in popular culture, fashion, and business, thereby shaping cultural trends on a global scale. These examples highlight how language and culture are interwoven and have been mutually influential throughout history. They demonstrate the dynamic relationship between language and cultural practices, showing how language shapes cultural expression and how cultural contexts shape the development and use of language. Here's that ping pong again. We are back to the ancient history side. So... Let us consider a bit about the Inuktitut language and their environmental knowledge. The Inuktitut language, spoken by the Inuit communities in the Arctic regions of Canada and Greenland, showcases a strong connection between linguistic structures, cultural categories, and environmental knowledge. Inuktitut has a rich vocabulary and nuanced grammatical features that allow speakers to describe and convey detailed information about the Arctic environment, including snow conditions, ice formations, and wildlife observations. The language's complexity and specificity in these domains reflect the Inuit people's deep understanding and close relationship with their natural surroundings. The linguistic structures and usage of Inuktitut demonstrate how language encodes cultural categories and worldviews related to the environment, highlighting the significance of environmental knowledge and sustainability within Inuit culture. We are back to modern times again. And at this point in our conversation, let us consider endangered indigenous languages in North America. Many indigenous languages in North America, such as Navajo, Cherokee, and Ojibwe, have faced the unfortunate threat of extinction. However, there have been ongoing efforts to document, preserve, and revitalize these endangered languages. Community-based language initiatives involving collaboration between linguists, educators, and native speakers have played a crucial role. These initiatives include language documentation projects, the development of language learning resources, and the establishment of language immersion schools and cultural centers. The focus is on community-driven language revitalization, empowering indigenous communities to reclaim their linguistic and cultural heritage. These examples go on to highlight the importance of documenting and preserving endangered languages, recognizing the cultural heritage embedded within them, and implementing strategies for language revitalization and community-based language initiatives. 
By valuing and supporting endangered languages, we not only preserve linguistic diversity, but also acknowledge and celebrate the rich cultural knowledge and identity they embody. We'll remain in the modern times for now, and let us consider at this point languages and ethnic identity in indigenous communities. In many indigenous communities worldwide, language plays a central role in shaping individual and group identities. The choice to use and preserve indigenous languages is often linked to the maintenance and expression of ethnic identity. For example, among the Maori in New Zealand, the use of the Maori language is seen as essential for affirming cultural heritage and maintaining a distinct Maori identity. Language attitudes, language practices, and the intergenerational transmission of indigenous languages contribute to the construction and negotiation of ethnic identities within these communities. Efforts to revitalize and reclaim indigenous languages often aim to strengthen cultural identity and foster a sense of belonging among indigenous peoples. These examples highlight how language choice, language attitudes, and language practices are instrumental in shaping individual and group identities, both in ancient history and modern times. Language serves as a powerful tool for expressing and negotiating social identities, reflecting the intricate relationship between language, culture, and identity. We're going to now move into some era that is reminiscent of modernity. And I say that because many societies continue to perpetuate and to practice certain value systems that do really demonstrate honorifics on a linguistic scale. Now, on the other hand, speaking of globalization, I believe that on a sociolinguistic scale, we can see how things like globalization penetrates sociolinguistic and ethnolinguistic communities as well because oftentimes certain aspects of language may be altered and or removed and they may additionally adopt different portions of more globalizing languages and incorporate them into bits of sentences and communications within their own. Remaining in modern times, we'll now discuss Japanese honorifics and social hierarchy. The Japanese language is renowned for its elaborate system of honorifics known as keiko, which reflects the intricate social hierarchy and respect-oriented culture of Japan. Japanese honorifics encompass linguistic forms such as specific verb conjugations and honorific titles used to show respect and to maintain social harmony in various social interactions. The language's structure and usage reflect the deeply ingrained cultural norms of respect, politeness, and deference in Japanese society. By employing honorific language, speakers acknowledge and reinforce social hierarchies, emphasizing the importance of relationships, age, and social roles. 
The linguistic structures and usage of honorifics in Japanese exemplify how language mirrors cultural categories and social behaviors, reflecting the cultural emphasis on social harmony and respect. I read a really great article um, on that, and I can't wait to present on it in a later episode. These examples illustrate how language, through its linguistic structures, usage, and cultural behaviors, serve as a reflection of cultural categories, conceptualizations, and worldviews. By examining the connections between language and culture, we can gain insights into how language shapes and reflects cultural practices, perceptions, and understandings of the world. Here are a few more examples that highlight how language variation occurs within specific cultural and social contexts. Examining dialects, registers, and other sociolinguistic factors in relation to cultural identity and group memberships. Still ping-ponging here, let us revisit ancient history, which is something I spoke of a little bit earlier in terms of what ethnos means and how it is still so prevalent in Western knowledge. In ancient Rome, the Latin language played a crucial role in shaping individual and group identities. Latin was the language of the Roman elites and the official language of the Roman Empire. It served as a marker of social status and cultural distinction. The mastery of Latin was seen as a symbol of education, sophistication, and belonging to the Roman elite. Language choice, language attitudes, and language practices associated with Latin contributed to the construction of a distinct Roman identity, further reinforcing social hierarchies and cultural cohesion within the empire. Still remaining in that realm, let us dive a little bit deeper to understand a bit about the Latin dialects in ancient Rome. In ancient Rome, Latin was spoken as a vernacular language across the vast Roman Empire. However, Latin exhibited significant variation in dialects across different regions, reflecting the cultural and social diversity of the empire. For example, vulgar Latin in air quotes here, emerged as a distinct variety spoken by the common people, diverging from classical Latin used by the elite and in formal contexts. The regional dialects of Latin, such as the African Latin dialect or the Gallo-Romance dialects in Gaul, also known as modern-day France, further demonstrated how language variation reflected cultural and social identities within the diverse Roman Empire. These dialectal variations allowed individuals to identify with specific cultural and regional groups, shaping their sense of cultural identity and of their group membership. Ping-ponging back to modern times here, let us look at English varieties in the United States. In modern times, the United States exhibits a rich variety of English dialects, influenced by sociolinguistic factors such as region, ethnicity, and social class. Different regions of the United States have distinct dialectal features, including pronunciation, vocabulary, and grammatical patterns. For instance, 
and the southern dialect characterized by features like the southern drawl and unique vocabulary reflects the cultural and historical context of the American South. African American Vernacular English, AAVE, which we'll put a pin in this for a later moment and discuss it a little bit more in detail, however, I find to be at the very least not all-encompassing this term here. Um, while I do understand that it wants to group things together and that is a tendency of us as human beings, it is also imperative to understand that African-American Vernacular English, or as it is acronymized as AAVE, is not necessarily a monolith. There exists multiple, and hey, I might even venture to say a myriad of different dialects and different accents that would be considered part of African-American vernacular English. And so, such being the case, the term is almost too specific to understand how broad the linguistic varieties uh, of African-American vernacular English there are. So, without further ado, I'll continue here, but that was a little sidebar and commentary that I've always found to be something of interest. So, African American Vernacular English, AAVE, is another notable variety that has its roots in the African American community, reflecting unique linguistic patterns expressions and cultural influences. These dialectal variations within the English language in the United States illustrate how language reflects the cultural identity and group membership within specific social and regional contexts. We must visit one example of a European country where as we stay along this side of the timeline and we consider modern times here, let us visit language choice and national identity in Switzerland. One of my favorite countries, I must say, as I spent quite some time working there as well. Switzerland, a multilingual country, provides an interesting example of how language choices influence the construction of individual and group identities. The country has four national languages. Those are German, French, Italian, and Romance. Language choices in different regions of Switzerland reflects and contributes to the negotiation of social identities. For example, individuals who speak German predominantly identify with the German-speaking Swiss community, while those who speak French identify as part of the French-speaking Swiss community. Language attitudes, practices, and the perceived cultural affiliations associated with these languages contribute to the construction of regional, linguistic, and national identities within Switzerland. Still in modern times here, let us now move towards the Semitic languages. Let us take a journey to understand a bit more about the Arabic diglossia and register variation. Arabic is a language that exhibits diglossia, a sociolinguistic phenomenon characterized by the coexistence of two distinct registers. In this case, what would be considered classical Arabic or what some scholars and individuals may call as fusha, and colloquial Arabic, 
what some people would also call Amiya. We spoke about this a little bit earlier in terms of classic and what people would say modern Greek and also colloquial and in terms of the Roman Empire as well, the different vernaculars and the different varieties there, for example, the vulgar Latin in comparison to the classical Latin, which was that of the elite or the variety most preferred by the elite. So considering the Arabic diglossia and register variation, let us understand a bit more about what's going on here. Classical Arabic serves as the written and formal language used in religious texts, literature, and formal speeches, while colloquial Arabic is spoken in everyday conversations and varies across different regions. The choice of register depends on the social context and the level of formality required. Register variation in Arabic reflects cultural and social factors, including education, religion, and social status. Individuals may switch between registers based on the audience, emphasizing the connection between language variation and cultural identity within the Arabic-speaking world. These examples demonstrate how language variation occurs within specific cultural and social contexts, examining dialects, registers, and sociolinguistic factors. Language variation reflects and shapes cultural identity, group membership, and social dynamics, highlighting the intricate relationship between language and culture in both ancient history and modern times. So here's the part where I talk about the A's to the Q's, or the answers to the questions I could say as to the Q's as well, but hey, as previously I stated, I suppose that it's best that we answer the question, what is ethnolinguistics, prior to us filling in the blank. Well, I guess we've taken a bit of a detour there, but now let's get to it. Just to recap, I define ethnolinguistics as an interdisciplinary field of study that explores the intersections and complex relationships between language, culture, ethnicity, and identity as either activated, enacted upon, formulated, influenced, and or negotiated within varied social settings. And as stated earlier, for the purposes of this podcast, sharing my own definition of the term ethnolinguistics allows for me to present on opportunities that contextualize the definition according to the varied episode topics as we continue on our ethnolinguistic journey. So back to our first question here. What the fill-in-the-blank is an ethnolinguist? Well, as we've understood what ethnolinguistics is, now I guess we could easily understand that. Basically, ethnolinguists study all of the aforementioned and more. Here are some other areas of scholarship to which the field of ethnolinguistics may be extended. Culinary linguistics, linguistic ecology, ratiolinguistics, a topic we'll definitely touch on a little bit later, especially being that it is a fairly recent um, subcategory, if we would like to, or subfield of linguistics itself, and the same for people-first language. Now that we've covered the basics and beyond, Let's make a pit stop along the way to further discuss the formatting, flow, and foci of this podcast. 
a word on what you can expect. Set the stage, tell a story, introduce the topic. All of these reminders to myself, right? Upon setting the ethno-linguistic stage, I'll aim to provide glimpses of our fellow humans' experiences by way of stories in order to best introduce topics and the connections we have to set topic. Regarding episode keywords and concepts, there'll oftentimes be a separate segment. So additionally, I create separate yet adjacent explainer segments to provide contextualized definitions of the keywords and concepts covered in each episode. As a word with the ethnolinguist is a podcast dedicated to discussing our world ethnolinguistically or how people work out their respective relationships to within between language and culture, what you can expect along each episodic journey is coverage on how three principal elements, namely people, culture, and language are interwoven and related to one another and the topics at hand. Basically, I'll be asking myself, so how does the topic relate to A, people, B, language, and C, culture? Solo episodes versus interview-centric episodes. Certain episodes will in fact be presented solely by me and others will be episodes where we get a chance to hear from fellow knowledge seekers, from language and culture enthusiasts, scholars, and experts in their respective fields. So, considering calls to action. Basically, I want to hear from and interact with you all, my audience. In terms of the research, what we'll see here is that oftentimes I will cite sources because I think that that is absolutely imperative to furthering knowledge. And such sources cited will be provided in the show notes and additional links to resources will also be included ethno anecdotes bonus content basically well as i've already provided an example of what would normally be part of the bonus content i'll not go too much into detail here however i'd venture to say that this is in definitive alignment with the aforementioned reminders edes to set the ethno-linguistic stage to tell a story and introduce engaging topics the ethnews segment also part of our bonus segment here is basically a place where i provide updates on current events calls for abstracts papers both in person and virtual conferences culturally and linguistically driven projects, public and institutional challenges, collaborations and research initiatives, ways to contribute to the documentation and preservation of endangered languages, and much more. Moving on to the basic cues. So, motivational accountability questions is what I like to call them. So, these are my ways to map. Here are a few questions that lie at the core of my drive and intentions for this project. I am always asking myself a set of these questions here, and just to keep it quasi-brief here, I will state that there are nine, and a lot of them may overlap. However, they really allow for me to learn as much as I can about the topics that I wish to present on and that hopefully I can present on in a fashion whereby it is engaging enough for you all to correspond with me and we learn together. So 
I always ask myself these questions here. What do I aim to accomplish? Which stories will I tell you and why are they important? What do I hope that you, my audience, gains from tuning in? How does this connection actually resonate as human beings? How does it connect to us as humans? What's the big minutia? What's the big picture? How can I contribute to ethnolinguistics and its adjacent fields of study being more broadly accessible? Which topics are most relevant to your audience based on research and the engagement that I wink, wink, mentioned before? <laughs> what do they want to learn? And why not share just what I learn? In order to basically define the success of this podcast, I think that it's paramount for me to express what I feel would make this podcast be successful. Besides the obvious here, which we'll touch on in just a bit, I really hope to touch hearts. I really hope to make this, like I say, much more accessible to a broader audience. I know for me in particular, one of the big considerations is that topics like linguistics and anthropology were not offered and, to my best of knowledge, are still not offered in all or in at least a healthy percentage of secondary education. I really hope to garnish a following of younger listeners so as to be able to promote such interesting topics of study that ultimately, if introduced at an earlier age, may really add to the globalizing effect of appreciating languages in a different fashion. And to understand that, as I once stated before in an article written for the CSA, that is the Caribbean Studies Association, it was entitled Globalization un enemigo sociolinguistico. And basically this article was written in Papiamento. For those of you who want to check that out, there is an English version also attached to that and it's easily accessible as well. Basically, globalization does not mean that for us to take on and understand and utilize and apply at will a lingua franca, that we have to give up those of our own. We don't have to give up our own languages. And so defining podcast success to my audience is basically helping people learn this and to promote a very inclusive environment where we are all able to understand the value of learning from one another of course like i say i do want to mention that there are other ways to define success here and engaging with my audience also allows for my listeners to help me grow and to discover even more of my unknown curiosities and like i said of course it probably goes without saying but to further delve into success measures here engagement in the forms of q a's blog posts interactions social media for uh, followers um, participants of unique public and closed groups and like i say tons of subscribers that would be also another way of defining success. So let's talk a bit about me, as I promised I would, and hopefully I won't go too much into detail here so as to bore you, but let us give it a shot. So a bit about me and what I'm currently working on. 
first I think it's paramount for us to start with the roots. I'll talk about my background, my ethnic, academic, and professional background, and do so hopefully in the briefest of fashions so as to inform yet not bore. So I hail you from Brooklyn, New York. Greetings. I did tons of moving. This in particular transpired between my teens and up to my late 20s, almost creeping into my 30s. <laughs> the majority of my lived years have consecutively been spent here and I love my home but I also equally love, possibly more, the ability to travel and get to, you know, no other places within this world. In terms of my background, so formerly I have been educated in anthropology and linguistics and currently work in tech. Regarding my professional life here, I've had quite a bit of transitions occur partially due to moving as frequently as I did in other portions of my life and in the latter part really understanding the value of my study and where I've been able to apply it so currently I work in tech I am a scholar whose interests are most often centered around linguistic anthropology sociolinguistics and ethnolinguistics I do also do other consultations and I do translating and interpretation work as well. That is the way that I have found myself moving and navigating through my career. And at this current moment, I'm finding myself in a bit of a predicament here where I mentioned loving living here, but trying to pinpoint an accurate opportunity for me to go elsewhere to pursue a bit more of my interests in terms of research and just getting to know my fellow human beings. Considering where I want to go moving forward here, I'm definitely on a quest to continue to be that lifetime or that life learner here. You know, I, I really understand that in terms of what growth really entails for me, I need to continue to expand my horizons and it's just as simple as that. I really enjoy learning. It brings me felicity. It brings me, you know, great joy and to be able to share what one has learned is a wonderful experience, especially when done humbly. So I hope that I am living up to that at this moment. I would describe myself as an educator and a life virtuoso who just so happens to be a multi-ethnic polyglot and who loves understanding my fellow human beings. In terms of my ethnic background, I am a heritage speaker of a few languages here. As I say, I was born in the United States and raised here in the very early parts of my life, but definitely ventured out and moved around many times. Uh, I said tons of movement, so let's get a little bit more particular here. Basically, to date, I've moved 23 times, and that has not always been 
been to different countries per se, but it has been to different regions. It has been to different areas of the United States. It has been to, of course, different countries and what we still call territories. And if you listen to certain other individuals, scholars, and residents of particular countries, they may consider territories also a form of new colonization. Therefore, understanding a bit about how one's identity is seen and acted upon, negotiated, understood, contested, and so on and so forth, I think it really hit home for me being that I am what I like to say as just a common sancocho. And this is another nationally known dish in Curaçao. This is definitely one of the more widely known Brazilian national dishes as well. So I'm like a kalalu. That's how you would say that in English, uh, some sort of um, delicious mixing of uh, flavors and and relating that to myself, of course, I mean to say there's lots of things in my background in terms of ethnicity. I am unequivocally a man who identifies with my black heritage. Um, I also identify with my Latin heritage, my African heritage in particular as well, and I am very much so proud to be a scholar within that context in this time. I mentioned Sancocho because that's also the Dominican word for a national delicious soup, if you will, where also lots of ingredients are thrown in and it really speaks to the necessity of people of course and so we'll talk later on as we mentioned about culinary linguistics and so on and so forth because they're equally greatly interesting topics that means i am like kachupa and kachupa for those uh, listeners out there who do not know what that means um, that is, once again, a national dish and soup or stew um, of the Cape Verde Islands. And this is one of the ways that I definitely consider myself to be. I have quite a bit of, like I say, different ethnicities. And um, being born in the United States, a lot of them, like I say, these languages that I do speak have come to me by way of being heritage languages. So now let's move on to some of my previous scholarship passions and projects. So I really love traveling. I mentioned that earlier. I also enjoy sustainability and environmental efforts. Looking at my passions, one of them is, of course, speaking on language, people, cultures, etc., etc. The other thing that I would say most stands out besides that in traveling is understanding that within the realm of sustainability, I can also look at elements of fashion. And so I'm really interested as well in different 
techniques and different ways people utilize fabrics and textiles and the ways in which they were crafted and dyed and so on and so forth and how that's equally tied to one's environment. And then, of course, that leaves way for trade, which then makes itself into what we call modern days globalization. And understanding how this all links to the fields of study that I'm most passionate about here, I really find myself enjoying ideation to creation. That process is something that really speaks to me. And from ideation to creation, in this sense, I use that to mean one of my passions as an extension of the first portion of it is to create my own clothing. Let's talk a bit about some current projects here. So, as I mentioned, working in tech, I am also doing some insider corporate ethnography. And that is quite an interesting project as well. And we'll speak more about that on a later episode. But that and, of course, the project of writing a dictionary. This particular dictionary is also for a marginalized language in many regards and it is however for a creole language that does enjoy a relatively different status amongst creole languages and what we'll be doing is basically taking on a charge to provide a resource for my community and with that I, I really hope that this project of passion and love is is well received and so I'm working on writing a dictionary as well and of course hey, this project that you're listening to is uh, also all done by me that is written by me the production so on and so forth the mixing um so i really decided to try my hand at a multitude of things and there was a large learning curve that's still actually going on but in terms of you learning about me hopefully this was enough to give you a solid foundational understanding but not too much so as to bore if i did so sorry about that <laughs> now if you have enjoyed our episode today please follow subscribe and continue on the ride to experience an ethno-linguistic vibe as previously stated i'd love to hear from you so for those of you who found yourselves actually filling in the blank please visit our social media also found in the show notes below and click on what the fill in the blank is an ethnolinguist. Drop those responses and let's have a conversation. For Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, the links are below. But additionally, please be sure to search as a word with the ethnolinguist, with the being represented by W forward slash the and ethnolinguist being spelled E T H K N O W L I N. G-U-I-S-T. Please check out our Facebook at a word with the ethno-linguist. For Instagram, you can find me at the underscore ethno-linguist. E-T-H-K-N-O-W-L-I-N-G-U-I-S-T. And for Twitter, my handle is at ethno-linguist, which is E-T-H-K-N-O-W-L-I-N-G-U-I-S-T. 
All right, fellow knowledge seekers, stay tuned for our next episode where I beseech you to explore the realms of language and power. Until next time, this is Amari J, and you are having a word with the ethnolinguist. A Word with the Ethnolinguist, hosted by me, Amari J, is a podcast dedicated to discussing our world ethnolinguistically. In other words, how people work out their respective relationships to, with, and between language and culture.